Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, we don't have time for anything this week. We, we can't <laughs> talk about Zelda. We can't talk about our lives. We got to get right to the heart of the matter. The heart of worship. The heart of worship. If you're listening to this, you're being exploited by your boss, and we're ready to tell you how. <laughs> That's It's urgent. This is urgent <laughs> urgent news from the 1800s that we're here to tell you <laughs> Alert, <how>. alert. <laughs> Finally, someone's here on a podcast to tell you just how bad you've got it. Um, okay, how bad you've got it and how bad everyone else has it. So we've said this before. We have two kinds of episodes on this podcast. One where we talk about some interesting intersection of leftist stuff and Christianity stuff, <laughs> broadly construed. That sounds right. Yeah, extremely broadly construed. We also have episodes where we talk about some kind of like extremely esoteric Marxist theory that actually makes a difference for the ways that Christians come to understand the world that they live in. And this episode is the latter. So hold on to your butts for some extremely esoteric Marxist stuff that I think is really important. Um, there's a lot of vocab words here. There's a lot of... Um, conceptual uh, tensions, but I think they're important to get a handle on if you are interested in the ways that capitalism exploits people. Um, I know I am. Me too. So in Capital, yeah, we all are. (laughs) In Capital, a big book that Marx wrote, you might have heard of it. (laughs) It's on the bestseller list. Um, Marx is always trying to explain the way that capitalism works, and to no surprise, it's very complicated. There's so many moving pieces of the whole thing. But one of the core features of capitalist accumulation is the way that capitalists themselves have set up a particular system of production where they're making money off the labor of the working class and the sale of commodities that the working class creates. Kind of a bad deal for the working class if you Mm -hmm. think about it. I think it is bad. Um, I also like to, by the way, just imagine you explaining all that after having said, uh, hold on to your butts, as though you are letting a cigarette sort of dangle from your uh, from your lips, just like Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park, just staring at your computer screen, reading all this uh, stuff about exploitation. It does seem bad. And uh, I think (laughs) it it warrants that kind of intensity. (laughs) Great. great. I'm glad that you're on board with me. And this uh, this great tableau (laughs) of uh, of Jurassic Park visualization I just laid out here. Okay, so capitalists, they're making money off the working class and the sale of commodities, and they're not doing the work. It's so important to emphasize that, (laughs) you know, it's the workers doing the work, the consumers doing the consuming, and the capitalists doing the (laughs) capitalizing, (laughs) I guess. That's all. (laughs) Get a job. Nobody wants to work anymore. But the specific arrangement of these things is really important. Like how they all work out exactly is really uh, crucial to know about. So a capitalist will, of course, take the profits of the commodities that are produced. That's what capitalists do. They're they're capitalizing. But those capitalists will also save a lot of money by paying the workers who are producing far less than than what they're actually producing during like a given shift, right? So you're you're making – you're flipping burgers or whatever at the McDonald's and your boss is paying you $12, but they're making $50 off you, right? So that's that's one of the sources of their their massive profits. The value that capitalists derive from the amount raised through the sale of commodities and the amount it costs to have those commodities manufactured is what we call surplus value. Folks, we're like a minute into this podcast and we've already got a vocab word <laughs> ding, on the ding, table. Ding, ding, Yeah, imagine a surplus value in big neon lights and there's a confetti getting shot off from cannons. Uh, it's a, a huge thing to know about for sure. <laughs> um, this whole episode, I mean, you you know all this stuff. Uh, listener, you've heard it before. You've read Marx before. You've heard us talk about Marx, whatever. It's a lot of vocab, but stuff that I guess if you're around Marxism long enough you'll have uh, kind of gotten, right? The key is that capitalists want to wring out more and more of that surplus value from the process of production so they can make more profits. And you can get rid of the vocab if you need to. At the end of the day, the boss wants to make money, which means the boss wants to pay you less money, right? That's It's as simple as that. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that for the next hour. We're going to add a little bit of a twist on here. There's kind of a wrinkle to the Marxist story of surplus value, and it's something we've been talking about even in the last several months, I guess. Uh, think back to when we were talking about Bran and Sweezy and what they were doing in Monopoly Capital, trying to think through what are some of the ways that like Marx puts us on a path, but also maybe misses this or that point or doesn't develop a certain point. And we've been tracking all kinds of conversations around that political economy, right? Uh, Monopoly capital, we looked at dependency theory a little while back. And the key is that, for us at least, uh, the kinds of Christianity that we saw develop in the 20th century 
through liberation theology and other kinds of theologies that were really trying to get a handle on political economy. They were reading all this stuff. They were taking the time to figure out what is surplus value? What are the ways in which, you know, Marx saw something and also maybe needs to have some stuff sort of added on to it in order to account for the global South? So we're going to do that uh, in this episode with the help of a guy named uh, Rui Moro Marini, a really great name that if you try to say 15 times fast, uh, will probably make you say something very funny. Um, he's a Brazilian theorist and a political militant. And he wrote a book called The Dialectics of Dependency that tries to explain how what he calls the super exploitation of workers. That's another big neon word, confetti cannons, etc. The super exploitation of workers in the global south is a necessary part of capitalist production. So we can back up a little bit here. We can maybe talk about what Marx says about uh, the production of of commodities and all that kind of thing. But the point of the episode here, we're going to introduce you to Marini, we're going to get some of that stuff on the table, and we're going to keep sort of adding maybe to this conversation we've been kind of unintentionally (laughs) following for the last couple months (laughs) on uh, trying to really understand, like, what is the international relationship in capitalism? How does capitalism relate to the global south? And the global south is still the place where most Christians live now. So important to kind of figure out how all these things go together. So... I don't know, Matt, uh, maybe what, what's sort of the, the basics of how Marx talks about the production of, of commodities and some of that context? Yeah. OK, some really some really rough stuff here, some really rough uh, ideas around it before we get too into the weeds. Uh, when it comes to the productions of commodities, um, it doesn't happen without any context, right? It's not like it's not like capitalists think uh, two people meeting in the field <laughs> and all of a sudden one's the boss <laughs> and one's the worker, right? Um, that doesn't happen. And even sometimes um, Marxist uh, theory around production can even come off a little bit contextless as well. Um, but uh, Marx makes some important nods toward the like sort of, sort of global nature and the context that production happens in within uh, global capitalism, within capital. Um, but when it comes to the production um, of commodities, like there's a long interconnected chain of production that has to be taken into consideration with regard to the creation of surplus value, right? It's not just about workers in any one place. It's about the big scale, big picture chain of production that spans the entire world. Um, there's a lot of different ways to think about that for sure. Like, I mean, if like I was, I was making a, a quick nod about McDonald's earlier, earlier, right? And if you're like flipping burgers from McDonald's, your boss is uh, making X amount of dollars off of, you know, the work that you do over an eight hour shift or something. But to do that even, right, um, certain parts of the rainforest in Brazil have to be slashed and burned so that they can be um, uh, land used for cattle or large portions of um, indigenous communities in the United States have to be uh, removed from land so that uh, big factory farms can produce the amount of potatoes needed for French fries. Or the example that Marx uh, talks about in Capital and comes up in this uh, particular essay here about Marini as well is about the production of cotton and linen coats, right? Marx talks about that a lot in Capital. Um, (laughs) How much does it cost? How uh, How much labor goes into a linen coat and so on? Um, but the the point that Marini wants to make um, and dependency theorists wants to make uh, is that you don't get cotton and linen coats or you don't get hamburgers or you don't get French fries uh, without the exploitation of workers elsewhere in the world, right? You're, uh, the global supply chain uh, is, is dependent on uh, the exploitation and the super exploitation of workers elsewhere. Um, in the case of cotton, like I was just mentioning, um, you don't get the you don't get cotton in Britain without the exploitation of black slaves in the United States, right? It's all interconnected in this way that I think has to be recognized, and that's why dependency theory ends up being so important for people because uh, you can start seeing those those global connections that uh, expand just beyond your workplace and uh, start to see why the organization of the working class globally is a really important exactly. Idea. And I think it's important to note too that like. Marx was attentive to these things in kind of, I don't know, like in a very basic way, right? Like he would recognize in capital that, right. yes, cotton comes from uh, black slaves in the United States. He was very interested in that, um, but he didn't really develop that point. And in fact, usually when he's talking about slavery, it's a way to talk about uh, wage uh, relationships to sort of create a distinction between proletarians who get wages and slaves who don't. 
And it's not very well developed, and there's tons of critical literature on it as well. There's probably better ways of understanding the role of slavery in the global economy, etc. Um, but Marx, you know, he like he has some time for it. He just doesn't have enough time for it. Um, and the same with kind of global relations and capital. So when Marx is writing, we didn't have the sort of extent of globalized capitalism that we have today. But certainly it was, you know, coming into being. And Marx was aware of that, too. In fact, we'll see uh, a little later on that he kind of intuited what he called an international division of labor, which is a pretty sophisticated thing to recognize in the 1800s, but is like everywhere now. <laughs> pretty easy to to kind of see if you read the news, even those kinds of things. Um, so the point here is really to say what dependency theorists like Morini were trying to do was to say Marx recognizes all these things about capitalism and he's right to do it. But the things that he just gestures toward are in some ways actually really foundational to capitalism and really foundational today. Right. So Marini is really interesting in this whole conversation, in part because this book, The Dialectics of Dependency, lays out uh, a lot of different sort of angles uh, in that global economy that are like Marxist inspired, but moving beyond Marx as well. Just like what we said with Brand and Sweezy, right? They're Marxists, but they're saying something more that Marx wasn't able to see or, or didn't give enough time to. So uh, there's lots of different concepts that Marini adds to the mix. For example, he has a really cool concept about what he calls sub-imperialism. Uh, Marini is Brazilian, and so he recognized that Brazil was dependent on the economy of the U.S., but also... Brazil, especially during the time of the dictatorship, it had its own kind of imperial ambitions in Latin America. It's a huge country. It has a very big economy. And so it also exerts pressure on other economies. So just like Matt was saying, you know, if you want a bunch of hamburgers at McDonald's in the U.S., that's going to reshape the Brazilian economy in some some sense. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, but to a sort of lesser degree or not lesser, but maybe like in, in a different way, <laughs> uh, with Brazil's consumptive habits and the economies of the countries it is able to exert influence on, right? So Marini is, like, interesting because he's trying to think through these subtle distinctions. The key is not that Brazil isn't dependent on the U.S. or that it's imperialist in the same way that the U.S. is imperialist, but it's to say that it has this kind of, like, intermediary role in the chain of exploitation. So that's one great concept you can get out of Marini. It's not the one we're going to talk about today, though. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about this idea of super exploitation. Um, Marini's having like kind of a renaissance right now for a number of reasons, um, principally, I think, because his book, even though it was very influential in Latin America, his work was really influential in Latin America. Um, it was only recently, actually in last December, that the Monthly Review published the English translation of the Dialectics of Dependency, Previously, you would have had to read it in Portuguese or Spanish. And um, there's been also some other work coming out of Latin America that's being translated because Marini's having a bit of a renaissance there. So like there's a guy named Claudio Katz who's been doing work on Marini and other dependency theorists and really trying to like get the word out about what's going on. Um, Marini is unique among dependency theorists because he is like a super Marxist guy, but also a political militant. He was involved in political struggles and uh, was very active across the continent. So he's a really interesting kind of character. And this idea of super exploitation really shows the, the Marxist angle of his version of dependency theory in particular. And to kind of give us a guide here, there's a good article in the April issue of the Monthly Review, which is also online. It's by Andy Higginbottom. It's called Super Exploitation and the Imperialist Drive of Capitalism. And it tries to summarize why Marini's work on super exploitation is still relevant. And Higginbottom argues even more relevant now because uh, capitalism is, is more and more globalized and exploitation is more and more super <laughs> than when, uh, when Marini wrote this <laughs> book. So it's a, a good concept to wrap our heads around. And maybe one last table setting thing, and we can jump into talking about value and all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> dependency sure. theory is interesting because if you think back to our episode on dependency theory, it's not an explicitly Marxist uh, political economy. There are dependency theorists who were not Marxists. For example, um, Cardozo in Brazil, uh, a handful of other people. In fact, uh, Cardozo ended up being the president of Brazil at a certain point and was pretty neoliberal at that. Um, 
not a great situation. Uh, also, um, you can see a lot of debates within dependency theory about like how Marxist to be. Um, you get a, a Keynesian version of it that is pretty powerful um, and and not necessarily so bad. Celso Furtado in Brazil is kind of one of the main Keynesian guys. And so Marini, along with a bunch of other people like Anders Gunter Frank, they're really putting the Marxist spin on the idea that some economies are dependent on others. So there are ways of talking about dependency that aren't Marxist. Marini is a Marxist. And what's especially interesting to me is that a lot of liberation theologians were especially invested in that Marxist version. Uh, they read all that stuff. You can find them citing all that stuff. But they do go out of their way to cite the Marxist stuff, which I think is pretty important to recognize. And in particular, uh, Enrique Dussel does a lot with Marini. So you'll see Anders Gunder Frank in lots of stuff, uh, especially like Gustavo Gutierrez and others. But um, I think it's really interesting that like Marini is being read by these liberation theologians, um, but we haven't really been able to read Marini in English until literally last December. So cool to maybe open up some new vectors also of like thinking through liberation theology and its relationship to dependency theory. Totally. I really actually like that framing too of like, you know, liberation theologians were reading this type of dependency theory and like, you know, it might give us uh, as Christians in the global North uh, some, some new tools in the toolbox to kind of figure some of this stuff out. Um, I mean, they thought it was important for some pretty obvious reasons. And uh, I think it makes a lot of sense before we get to like super exploitation. We need to just talk about some of like the, the big ideas that are on the table here. So surplus value, I've mentioned this one already, but surplus value is like one of the core ideas, I think, in how Marx thinks capitalism works. And he's right. Uh, surplus value, again, is the difference between the amount that is raised through the sale of a commodity and the amount it costs to produce it, right? So the, that difference is uh, the surplus value that capitalists are going to walk away from the, uh, the day on the shop floor with. Uh, that's the money they're going to put right in their pockets, um, you know, or they'll give to shareholders or whatever other arrangement. There's a lot of things that people do with surplus value. That's another conversation um, that you can refer back to monopoly capital about, <laughs> actually. Anyways, so within surplus value, there's some other like important ideas that uh, Marx parses out. So there are two types of surplus value that Marx thinks are uh, you know important, and that is absolute surplus value and relative surplus value. And I just have like one word sentences to describe these really quickly, uh, so we don't need to like belabor the point too much, but absolute surplus value is like the amount of surplus value that's produced when a boss makes workers more like expanding the hours uh, worked in a day. Um, this is the way that Marx thinks about it though. I think, um, uh, you know, um, more recent economists and Marxists might think of it, you know, hours worked in a year or something, but you know, it's the amount, it's the amount, um, the absolute amount of surplus that you could, you could take away from that particular arrangement uh, if you extended working hours, even right. later. And just to okay. be clear, and that's then, also like oh, a fight the labor movement had to fight, right? The uh, We just uh, so oh, yeah. the midday, right? The eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for whatever we want. And it's also a fight that, uh, as we'll see in the Global South, is still ongoing. I think we mentioned it on this podcast recently, but in Colombia, for example, Petro, the left-wing president, has been trying really hard to push through legislation that would reduce the working day in Colombia to, I think it's nine hours or something like that. So they don't even have an eight-hour day in Colombia. And this is the left-wing proposal, right? Let's get down to nine hours. So just to kind of make clear that, like, that is uh, something that, you know, if you're working eight hours a day, you already feel exhausted. Imagine if you had to work, like, ten hours a day and that was just regular. That's what capitalists want, right? They're looking to get you to work as many hours as you can because that means they have more productivity that they can squeeze out of you. That's part of the the absolute surplus value. Totally. Yeah, those um, particular fights are really important. I was actually just working on this thing um, a few days ago uh, with regard to a strike where uh, I learned about the child labor laws in California. And uh, kids there aren't even allowed to work any hours during a school day. And that's mm -hmm. pretty fascinating to me. All that to say like that, these types of things are, are victories that are hard fought by labor unions and other kind other types of like labor organizations. And uh, yeah, like you said, capitalists, if they had their way, they'd make you work a hundred <laughs> hours in a day. It's more, more hours than there are. They don't care. They'd invent a longer day to make you work longer. Um, okay. So there's absolute surplus value. That's like the most amount you could take away from a, a working day. If you were to extend hours to some kind of like extreme level, 
There's also relative surplus value. And so that's a little bit of a different spin. That's the amount of surplus value that a capitalist can gain from lowering the wages of workers to the point of social reproduction, right? So, you know, on the on absolute surplus value, it's about stretching out the working day and getting more surplus value for um, more labor time worked. But relative surplus value is about, you know, how much value can you gain as a capitalist by knocking down the wages that workers have. And the Marxist theory is, uh, Marx's theory is that you can only do that so so far as like workers can still produce their lot, reproduce their lives socially, right? That they still have enough money to eat. Though, um, as we learn here uh, with Marini and dependency theory, that there's actually a secret third <laughs> thing going on in the world that Marx didn't necessarily know about, but I think is like in the spirit of Marx for sure. Um, and that is called relational surplus value or the super exploitation of workers. So relational surplus value is the surplus value that is produced from dropping wages below the point of social reproduction. Um, and the point here of Marini's theory is that this type of surplus value isn't like unique or novel. It's not something that is like only happening in some cases. But he thinks that this is like part of just the way that capitalism works by and large. And it's always been that way, right? Um, and uh, the the example I gave at the beginning of the conversation about like uh, black slaves in the United States and cotton is like maybe Marx's nod towards some of that. But um, this is something that Marini thinks is like core to the way that uh, capitalism works, that there are workers outside of, you know, quote unquote, developed countries that are being super exploited and who are paid less than they need to do the, the work of social reproduction. Uh, so an important phenomena um, that is integral to capitalism. In yeah. The way that it works. Uh, and we could add to Marx and Engels were able to see this in in some sense. Like if you read, for example, Engels' stuff on housing, on the housing question, you get a lot of interesting observations about how basically Engels is like the weird calculus between like landlords and capitalists in, in terms of sort of a ruling class issue is you need uh, working people to be able to afford enough housing to survive so that they can get to their job, but they don't need good housing, right? They don't need great housing. They just need to be able to be kind of housed. Like they need to be healthy enough to get there. Uh, but if you have enough population, they don't really need to be healthy enough to like live very long, right? And uh, Engels called that social murder, that there's a way that um, the conditions that we subject the working class to can be so bad that it foreshortens their lives and, you know, arbitrarily for no good reason except to, to make money. So you see this kind of already in Marx and Engels. And like you said, Marx mentions it with respect to slaves. In fact, Marx even recognizes that slaves have a foreshortened lifespan. And so the point is to squeeze out as much productivity as possible. The big key for Marini is to say, well, you know, this is uh, also sort of organized on a global scale in such a way that wages, uh, wages can be pushed so low. And that's an important way for uh, capitalists to make money by not paying out wages. They can be pushed so low that the capitalists basically don't care whether people live or die. And there's lots of moving parts to this too. For example, um, there are some some kind of interesting like ways that this cashes out, like where where workers have access to small parcels of land where they can like grow food and feed themselves. Um, that allows capitalists to pay them less in wages, right? Because they sort of, they're not relying on the wage as much for their food sustenance. Um, and that sort of allows uh, a hyper exploitation of, of workers because they, their work deserves a higher wage, but they could survive without it. Right. So capitalists are trying to like find ways to basically like, uh, you know, keep workers around as long as they absolutely need them. But if there's a surplus of workers, they'll definitely not really care about their health. And, and that literally does happen in lots of parts of the world. Um, lots of parts in the global South where there's just tons and tons of people and not enough jobs and they do literally die in factories and so on. And it's extremely bad. Um, Marini is interested in, in that part. And he's trying to say against the more liberal dependency theorists that like, this isn't a thing that could be solved by just making everybody be nicer or passing labor laws everywhere or whatever. He thinks it's baked into the system and you're not going to get rid of that inequality unless you get rid of capitalism as a global system itself. So that's the big like political 
Marxist uh, gloss maybe on the point. I got to tell you, I think he's right. <laughs> I think he's victim to the system. I mean, you can see you can see that in the ways that um, some countries that are undergoing the process of capitalist development will then, you know, pass off that type of production yeah. to other countries. It's sort of like a, a shell game of uh, of super exploitation. Um, let me read you something, Dean, from this monthly review article, and we'll kind of keep talking about Marini and what is Great. going on here. So uh, the monthly review article about super exploitation that we will certainly link somewhere uh, either on our Twitter and the show notes, probably both, honestly, <laughs> says this. Marini's original contribution was to explain the social relations of production at the root of international value transfer, thereby developing a distinct labor theory of imperialism that is the foundation of Marxist dependency theory. Marini identified the super-exploitation of labor as the fundamental social relation of capitalist underdevelopment. Uh, so what Marini is doing here is not just like kind of giving an amendment to Marxism, but to but pretty foundationally shifting, I think, the ways that uh, like Marxism talks about uh, imperialism and, and how imperialism is kind of at the heart of international capitalism. I think that's a really important uh, thing that we're that he's like building on. Um, so it, it kind of takes a step beyond Marxism and kind of resituates some of the uh, ideas around surplus value and, and where it's all coming from and, and how surplus value in one country is connected to the surplus value in another country. Um, I want to add a, one more bit here to kind of make the, to, to finish out the idea um, about super exploitation. Labor super exploitation conceptually captures the real condition of the working class in Latin America. It involves three elements, low wages, long hours, and an intense work to the point of exhaustion. Above all, it is characterized by the greater exploitation of the worker's physical strength as opposed to the exploitation resulting from increasing his productivity and tends normally to be expressed in the fact that labor power is remunerated be below real value. So this is important because this is just explaining the ways that Marini is con conceptualizing super exploitation and the relational surplus value as something that is like, not absolute surplus value, and it's also not relative surplus value. It's a secret third thing that I was talking about, right? It's uh, it's not just low wages. It's not just long hours. It's both of those things plus intense uh, intense uh, work to the point of exhaustion. So it's uh, it's it's like um, it's both and more of of uh, the extraction of surplus labor from right. workers. And two also important things about it. So it's a labor theory of imperialism, which is to say Marini is interested in the economic like necessity of imperialism. There are other theories of imperialism too, right? You could say imperialism is the result of, um, I don't know, ideological bad, ap bad actors, right? Like appetites for expansion. Um, the U.S. wants to be an empire just like Britain was an empire. It's, it's turned to expand and so on. And some of that is certainly true. Uh, the United States does have these imperial ambitions that are tied up in its extremely bizarre identity as like the Christian light on the hill that's supposed to expand itself across the world. Like that stuff isn't incidental. It's It's important. Um, and in fact, Marini thinks it's especially important because it leads to all kinds of ways that some people are allowed to be super exploited and other people are not. So it's not to say that those things don't matter. But the labor part is important because the labor piece is the necessity, even if there were no racists in the United States, a thing that is literally impossible to imagine. But even if there was no kind of racial ambition or um, superiority ambition in the U.S., there would still be this need for super exploitation. There would be a labor or value need for that exploitation. And that's something Marini is, is contributing. So I think that's one really important piece. Uh, the second piece that's really significant here is that it's there's this kind of uh, recognition on Marini's part that uh, this social murder that Engels is talking about or the things that Marx is pointing to but can't figure out uh, it's easier to see that stuff in the global south because it is just everywhere, right? Uh, it's what motivated dependency theory in the first place, both its liberal and Marxist expressions. And I think Marini is trying to also sort of make the point that, like, look, if you're in the global south, this stuff is just sort of around. Like, you don't have to work too hard to see it, uh, but you do maybe have to work hard to, like, find its place in Marxism. Uh, so he finds it in this uh, third dimension of of surplus value, which is not to say it's like a third, um, I don't know, like surplus value is one thing that kind of appears in these different ways, right? Um, 
you can get surplus value in this absolute way by extending the working day, in this relative way by keeping wages to the level of social reproduction, and you can get surplus value by depressing wages below subsistence levels. So surplus value is kind of one thing, and and capitalists want it, and they get it in these different ways. So Marini is trying to be like, he's not like saying this is a third surplus value. He's trying to say it's a third like vector in wi- by which capitalists get surplus yeah. value. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good a good way of putting it. It's like a different kind of like uh, well, not like paradigm even, but you're right, a different way of capitalists get <laughs> a strategy. Value. Helpful, a helpful reorientation. A strategy, that's maybe the better word even. I mean, there's a few different like pieces to pick up from this, but I think the part that is actually really interesting and important from this conversation then is that uh, what you see is like an international division of labor, right? That, um, I mean, I don't know. Um, we'll keep coming back to this cotton example or whatever. I, I don't know, because it's in the text that we're reading and it's kind of illustrative. But, uh, you know, there's types of work that gets done in, in quote-unquote, developed countries and types of work that gets done in, quote-unquote, undeveloped countries. I mean, undeveloped by capitalism, right? Um, or purposely developed in a particular way by capitalism. Um, and that international division of labor, I think, is a really important part of understanding capitalism today, as well as historically, um, for sure. Um, Dean, do you want to talk about that with regards to, I mean, you can talk about mm-hmm. that in Marx, and then maybe we can talk about the ways that uh, it comes out in Marini. Yeah, for sure. Well. So Marx, like we said earlier, already kind of intuits this, and uh, he mentions it, um, Marini mentions it, and also Higginbottom mentions it. But Marx puts it like this, a new and international division of labor springs up, one suited to the requirements of the main industrial countries, and it converts one part of the globe into a chiefly agricultural field of production for supplying the other industrial part. Uh, First of all, that is a pretty, like I said earlier, sophisticated observation for somebody in the 1800s. And Marx recognizes that the the cotton production piece of his story is related to that. Uh, It's kind of the seed, though, of what will become uh, analyses of imperialism in the Marxist tradition. So imperialism uh, sort of develops in Marxism in in a lot of like weird ways. Like it, you know, once Marx dies, uh, his theory has to get picked up by others and developed by others. And most famously, Lenin kind of summarizes and then adds his own gloss in his own book on imperialism. He summarizes kind of the debate um, within Marxism and some of the advances in Marxism. And so you have Lenin's big theory of imperialism, which has become sort of foundational even still today in uh, imperialist theory. You get other kinds of um, competing theories within Marxism, even people who are like, actually, there's no such thing as imperialism, an incredibly weird thing for people to say in the Marxist tradition, but guess what they do? Uh, You also get people like Rosa Luxemburg, who is kind of related to Lenin's theory, but is adding some more stuff about uh, the geographical sort of, I don't know, like the ways that capitalism has to sort of expand always. It has to like find an outside geographically and dump all its stuff in that in that outside part so that it can keep making money. Um, And then you see all kinds of economists today sort of picking that up. So all that to say, like there's this sort of like fits and starts um, theory of imperialism that comes out of Marxism. But you see it already here in seed form in Marx, right? There's an international division of labor and it works sort of similarly to the regular division of labor you know within a nation or within an economy um the the key is to sort of uh create an efficient system that delivers more and more profit to capitalists and the fact that that takes on this international role is interesting to marx but he leaves it sort of unsaid so you get it in marini and it it sort of works out with the examples that we've been talking about right um the the consumer attitudes that we have in the global north, we want McDonald's, we want iPads, iPhones, whatever. We need raw materials to make those things, and those raw materials are sometimes found in the global north, uh, but often um, cheaper and easier to find in the global south. And so it reshapes whole economies in the global south in the process. Um, and you have, like, even more explicit than Marx could ever have imagined. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, sometimes is basically like explicitly tinkering with the global economic system by sort of forcing global south economies to invest in one product or another. So 
Um, I think we talked about this a long time ago, but I always think of the example in Madagascar where the IMF was basically like, we'll give you a bunch of money if you turn your whole country into a field for uh, luxury rice, a thing that people in Madagascar could never eat or afford, but they do grow. And the irony is in Madagascar, they export all kinds of luxury rice and they import shitty rice grown somewhere else to feed their own people. An incredibly irrational thing to do in a country, but a perfectly rational thing to do given the international division of labor, because Madagascar's role is to uh, grow rice for rich people. It's not to grow rice for people in Madagascar, right? They're, they're sort of plugged in to the global economic system. So that's what Marini is after. He's trying to think through that international division of labor and kind of find like, what are the economic reasons that that happens? It's not just because capitalists are bad people. It's uh, related to trying to get more and more surplus value. Uh, that's a really helpful explanation. Um, this is something I want to give a quick nod towards because I think it's important and interesting, a different, another piece of the puzzle maybe. And we'll talk about it in a future episode, but the international division of labor is also a really important um tool when it comes to disciplining to disciplining other like uh countries that are kind of undergoing this type of super exploitation with regards to like fossil fuel emissions and carbon emissions and so on um you know uh countries like uh the united states like canada like you know western europe and so on they will uh claim uh, a particular type of greening of their economies like a type of uh green capitalism while they're shipping all of the production to other right, countries right. in this like international division of labor so that like, you know, they look good because, because their carbon emissions are are down. Uh, meanwhile, all these other countries, Oh, they suck. They're dumb. They're producing even more, but it's like, they're doing it on the behalf of, um, <laughs> of Western yeah. countries. So it's like, okay, they're doing it so you can make like a huge pile of Funko pops that you throw in the ocean or whatever. Yeah. I mean, exactly. It's exactly that. So anyways, all that to say that the international division of labor also has like this, uh, weird disciplinary function when it comes to climate change not like a huge a huge point here but i think it's worth make, making uh because it, it highlights the ways that uh that the international division of labor is also extremely stupid ideological um and like you said a minute ago uh with the rice example extremely irrational yeah so it's all it's all in there <laughs> let me uh pull out a little bit from this monthly review article just on the marx piece and that'll bring us forward to marini as well just to round it out so Hingabottom writes, Marx points out the hypocrisy of the English manufacturing class who spoke out against the cruelties of the Spanish and slavery in the Americas while being extremely cruel to their own workers, including, for example, dragging children from their beds in the middle of the night and forcing them to work in dangerous conditions for 10 hours at a time. As well as using slavery as a point of contrast with wage slavery, Chapter 10 of Capital indicates the distinct markets for the labor power of enslaved Africans. There's a contrast to the treatment of domestically traded slaves and the international slave trade. In short, though Marx uh, here displays the germ of recognition, he didn't develop the specific value category pertaining to chattel slavery. To be truly general, the theory of surplus value needs to include free waged labor and enslaved labor, as well as other forms of subjugated labor as modes of exploitation. In fact, Marx showed that wage labor was not free labor in many circumstances, the cotton spinning mill and Marx's leading example of the capitalist process of production uh, from chapter seven of Capital onward. In addition to cotton spinning, extensive reference is made to the related trades of weaving, cloth dyeing, and garment making. Marx considers the interactions between these branches, especially their cycles of boom and bust. For example, the mass attraction of workers into the weaving trade to keep pace with the rapid expansion of machine production of cotton yarn and the expulsion of these same workers when more productive machine looms replace hand looms with tragic consequences. This, in modern parlance, was a commodity chain, one that began not with the spinning of cotton, but with the growth and harvesting of cotton. So the key here is, like, Marx gets it, like, mostly, but not completely, right? Uh, so it's a point we've been making over and over, but it just helps to kind of recognize that, like, Marx is still doing something pretty amazing, but, like, it doesn't hurt us to also say like, and also <laughs> we have to like do a better job for accounting what is kind of a, a little bit deeper in the, the commodity chain process. Totally. Um, there's a part in here I actually didn't put in the notes and I'll just, will mention it really quickly, but there's a part here too, where Marini helps us think through um, the ways that consumption is also uh, bound up with the, 
how consumption is bound up with the mechanization and the drive towards more super exploitation in the end too, that mm-hmm. I think is really helpful. Um, so there's a, there's a whole sort of technological element of this that I think is really worth uh, just noting. Go and read the monthly review article if you want to see more about that, if you're interested in, in that conversation. Um, but it's uh, pretty fascinating. Um, I like it and it's helpful. Well, okay. So kind of like rounding out the conversation here, I think there's two more points that we have to get to rather quickly. Um, and uh, the next one is that like super exploitation functions on the idea about driving down wages and um, that type of inequality ends up being like essential to the whole system of capitalism. Uh, another, another bit from the monthly review article here, Marx represented the excessive and oppressive conditions of exploitation as unfettered or with very weak and nominal limits. And how is this to be understood in relation to this fundamental concept of surplus value? It's true that the liberal bourgeoisie do not see exploitation when there is a, quote, fair wage for a fair day's work. But they only see exploitation when it is particularly excessive and oppressive, which they believe can be solved by political arrangements within the system, uh, labor laws and and so on, which, you know, are nice, but not the end of exploitation (laughs) by a long shot. But this is not a sufficient reason for Marxism not to explain these practices from the theory of surplus value, since they are the forms that capital pursues to increase exploitation that cannot be resolved without overthrowing the whole system. Marxist theory cannot assume equality when all around we see these structured inequalities. The capitalist mode of production systematically produces inequalities in the working class. Workers' lives are objectively differentiated as of more or less value in capitalism. These differentiated social relations of exploitation and super-exploitation are essential to the mode of production rather than some epiphenomena of lesser general significance. A great passage that I think is trying to push the idea, too, that, like, you can't just... It's it's not just, like, a matter of more labor laws or something, even though labor laws can be, like, significant for sure, right? But that's not going to change fundamentally the type of super-exploitation that's happening on a global level, um, and that that is a really helpful acknowledgement, right? I think this this balance is a really interesting thing to try to work out because I mean we were talking about earlier in, in the episode, right? That like uh, labor labor unions, workers, all kinds of other like organizations of people had to fight extremely hard in the United States, in Canada, in the UK for an eight hour workday. Like they literally fought cops, you know, they were hanged and so on. All kinds of like um, retaliations were brought against them. Um, but like winning the eight hour workday was really important, right? It's an important foothold for workers. Um, and raising wages also an important foothold for workers to like live their lives, um, for sure. But it doesn't fundamentally address the heart of exploitation that is surplus, the the production of surplus value, um, within capitalism, right? Even if you are paid a little bit more for your work, even if you do have a, uh, a shorter workday, uh, still, at, at, at the very heart of the way the whole system works, your boss is taking surplus value from you and you're not being paid the fair amount, I, I guess, is, is kind of the, the moral of the story, right? All these things, they're great, for sure. Win them, absolutely. 100% need them. But uh, but they, they themselves are not going to extinguish the type of exploitation that is inherent in capitalism. Yeah, and also that piece about workers' lives being differentiated as of more or less value in capitalism is really significant, there are some people who um, are allowed to have labor laws <laughs> and other people who are not. Um, yeah. You know, this is a huge debate in Marxism around uh, basically like can the first world working class really be an ally to the uh, the global south? Because, you know, we are like our high wages allow us to buy stuff that enables the uh, oppression and exploitation of people in the global south. And that just is true right like we are compromised by that in the global north always um our ability to like i don't know afford all the things that working class people want um that ability rests on the uh, reality of super exploitation somewhere else and maybe one day we'll have to do a whole episode about that it's a really big complicated conversation but i think uh you know marini's point is really important that super exploitation basically does create a differentiation of value in terms of life uh on a global scale like i always think about um i remember when i was first like becoming a marxist i saw some story about how the obama administration had intervened in uh i believe it was haiti to drive down wages uh related to gene manufacturing like for levi i think it was and uh i, I remember being like 
That's so weird because we would never accept that in the U.S. If you like worked at a factory making Levi jeans, you know, and the government intervened in the United States to be like, actually, these workers shouldn't make that much money. You'd be like, that's insane. Like no, no U.S. worker would ever accept that. But our government, the U.S. government is the one doing that in a country like Haiti. Right. So the the idea is Haitian lives are literally worth less than lives of American workers. Um, and I think that's really important that at the end of the day, the differentiation of life um, is is also fundamental to capitalism. You see that developed in theories of racial capitalism. People like Ruth Wilson Gilmore have been talking a lot about that, uh, which I think is really helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, th there's a kind of like there are there are social things hanging around the economic stuff which is hard for Marxists to talk about. And that's not a very sophisticated way of putting it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's there are social relations, social exploitation, social expectations, and so on that sort of enable, like, these are the people who are going to get super exploited, and these are the people who are going to be able to, you know, they might still be exploited themselves for sure, but they're going to be able to enjoy the fruits of that super exploitation as a kind of, like, subtle contract they've made with uh, the capitalist class of the global north, which I think is, you know pretty troubling for all of us who live in the global north. I think that that is true. I mean, the, the whole thing about unequal development, like, you know, people in the United States just wouldn't accept that. But I think in other ways, people in the United States do accept that, but for, you know, particular segments of, course, of the population. Yeah. For example, like, you know, farm workers and domestic workers in the United States are exempt from a lot right, of labor laws. Right. And uh, we do accept that, right? We do accept that farm workers have to live in, like, a barracks with their families while they make uh, $2 for a a big box of blueberries right. or whatever they pick. Um, so, I mean, I think it's true that, I mean, absolutely there are people in the global South that are super exploited in ways that they're not in the global North, but also there is the wrinkle of like people on the margins uh, in, even in the global North who uh, have to put up with that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a different. Yeah. A different I'm thinking way. of like somebody who is effectively unionized and protected by unions and so on, you know, like, um, uh, one way that Marxism has talked about it is to talk about labor aristocracy on a global scale that like, you know, if you if you're like the I mean, these this situation hardly exists anymore. But let's say you're kind of the the dream of the Fordist sort of imagination, right? Like you have a great union, you make enough money to buy the product that you create. Uh, you have like a pretty OK retirement and so on. Like I said, a, a rarer and rarer phenomenon. But um, that person in that position, yeah. it, their whole life is made possible by outsourcing the super exploitation somewhere else. So they're still exploited. They still are, you know, whatever, like they fit into the Marxist scheme, but like their consumer habits are driving that super exploitation. So, yes, of course, like not something right. we could say about the working class as a whole in the U.S. as though it was also a, a non kind of stratified, you know, homogenous body. But like there's that mm -hmm. kind of weird global piece to it. Yeah, it is actually really interesting to point out the ways that our consumption does put us at odds with other people um, in the world, with other workers, and that is a really troubling <laughs> idea, I think. Um, but a conversation for another yeah. time, I think. Well, all right, we've got just a few minutes left. This is a shorter episode because Matt and I are doing it literally in between meetings in the middle of the afternoon. Um, <laughs> so why don't we uh, round it out here in the last five minutes or so. Liberation theologians, like we said at the top, you know, they thought it was worth parsing out all these details of political economy so that they can figure out how to be better Christians, how to be more faithful to a God who calls for liberation and justice and has this preferential option for the poor. So Matt, why should Christians care about uh, the the very recent English publication of this Brazilian Marxist dependency theorist and people summarizing it in the monthly review? Yeah, I think that there people should care because this this particular uh, recently translated publication <laughs> in the monthly review, a very niche magazine that no one's reading except us and a handful of other like extremely strange Marxists. Uh, it's important for Christians because um, like capitalism, it gives people a bad deal. We know, we know that. Right. And, and that whole thing should rub Christians the wrong way. Like Christians, I, I mean, it, it, it feels like almost like a parody to say this, but like Christians literally worship a God who literally became a poor person and was constantly calling out the wealthy for their exploitation of people. Like at every turn, we've seen it in, uh, you know, in parables, in the gospel outright, in um, some of the epistles. We see it in the Old Testament. I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? This is like a central core idea within Christianity 
um, in a big way. So I don't know if we, if we want to be faithful to those types of ideas, if we want to like really consider those things in a big way, then we have to understand the ways that, that the very mechanics of capitalism, the ways that our lives are structured, the types of consumption that we engage in, the type of production that we uh, do and also are connected with globally. Like, we need those perspectives. I, I don't know how are you going to love your neighbor <laughs> if you if you don't even like recognize the ways that your that your life is like making your neighbor's life unlivable, um, or you know if you're if you really do think that God was born like a poor person um, on on Earth, like how can you I, I don't know go on living your life while you know you're knowingly uh, exploiting people in other countries. I mean, there's a there's a sense. So all that I'm trying to say is that this gives us a particular type of tool that, as Christians, to think about uh, why we should, I don't know, oppose capitalism harder or something. It, it's just like knowing this stuff is like half the battle, and then trying to like enact some type of like global solidarity or be involved in global solidarity is maybe the other the other piece. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, as as Christians who live in the global north who are trying to follow the direction of a God who is literally a poor person. I feel like we have to uh, become more in tune with the ways that uh, capitalism makes people poor in the first place. Um, and, and uh, like Ignacio Eucuria says, like, you know, cru- crucifies them as a whole class of people. Uh, so I think this is at least uh, one way to kind of figure that out. There you have it. Matt said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. At two bucks, you can get access to a monthly podcast we do behind the paywall that's a little goofier. You can also get in our Discord community that's really fun, also very goofy, uh, but full of other people, other goofy people. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have